I had this happen to me one time where I did the audition I was written for Middle Eastern, okay? Because at that moment, any brown woman was auditioning for Hispanic, mixed. Really, it made me realize that the casting world sees us in a way that we don't see ourselves. They only see us in certain verticals. So we have to fit into these different categories. And I think that was very challenging for me too, because I just felt uncomfortable. I just, it felt inauthentic doing that. But when you're just starting out, you don't say no. Besharam, Batamese, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Chalhata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast. This multi-award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos from sex, sexuality, mental health, menopause, to nipple hair, and more. This season is a US special, and it took me by surprise. You see, I interviewed these incredible South Asian American women I expected to hear some angst around identity and belonging. Instead, they told me how comfortable they were with both their South Asian and American identity. I confess, this is not the podcast season I set out to record. It's so much more powerful. I loved chatting with Melanie Chandra. We discovered our common Kerala heritage and explored our journeys towards our cultural identities. Melanie Chandra is best known for her role on the CBS drama Code Black. I also loved Mel in the hilarious Comedy Central movie Hot Mess Holiday, which she co-created, executive produced and also starred in. It's the first buddy comedy on American TV to ever star two women of South Asian descent. It was awesome to watch two South Asian women near my age playing the leads. A mechanical engineering student at Stanford University, Melanie traded her very successful corporate career for the arts, and she hasn't looked back. And I'm so glad. I never felt like I was fully Indian or fully American. So to take a step back, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, which is a pretty diverse city. There's actually a big population of Indian um, Indian people in Chicago, but I was removed from that. I was middle America, middle class. It was a predominantly white neighborhood, Jewish and Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school, public high school. And um, yeah, you know, there were cliques of Indian girls here and there, and they would do the cultural shows and they would go to temple together. And then there were the very American girls, upper middle class. And I would try to fit in with them because I felt like the Indian girls looked at me in a different way. And I just felt very insecure. I think, you know, I was just constantly wondering what people thought of me, why people didn't seem to connect to me. And I think it was because I was just trying to figure out who I was, you know, and I didn't have that. I was trying to figure out my voice and what I stood for. I totally resonate with that. I think I did as well. Yeah. I wonder if that is because as young women, we're trying to sort of fit in because that's such a part of 
growing up, isn't it? Especially when you're a teenager, you're like trying to belong or find who your tribe is or things like that. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you've grown up in a very different society, culture, maybe from where your parents came from. Do you think that's what that was? Do, do you know why you felt like that? Sure. Another interesting thing about my parents is they, they had a love marriage. They're, my mom's Catholic, my dad is Hindu. And so it wasn't even like we could go to the Indian church, right? Or we would go to the temple because we were these kids that didn't belong to either community fully or we weren't really accepted. Our family was not accepted into those communities because of that love marriage. And so my parents wanted me to, and I think they were a little unhappy about that, not being welcomed into their community. So they wanted us to just assimilate but I just felt like that wasn't, I was just never fully there. And, you know, I was this hairy Indian girl with sideburns and then always in my book. So I had big glasses, like so nearsighted. So I looked, I felt like I looked like a dweeb. And then I felt like, I, you know, I was just so quiet too, because um, I'm not sure about you, but when you, with my cultural conditioning, it was like, keep your head down and just focus on work, yes. hard work. It, it was ingrained in my psyche for since I was like in the womb was hard work. You just have to work hard. That's all you do. Work hard. And then the results will come work hard. <laughs> and that is this like believe and manifest and just, you know, use your voice. It was just focus on your studies and that will lead to success. Yeah. I leaned, I leaned into all of that. And in a way I alienated myself from like the cool girls that had social lives yeah. I'll go out for movies after school, go to the shopping mall, have have sleepovers. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I didn't. But then I also didn't have an Indian door, you know, dweeb community as well. Like I just didn't have that. So I felt very much like a loner. I absolutely get that. And I definitely felt that. And I know a lot of other women who have. And there's something about this occupying two worlds that we do or many worlds for some of us and never quite feeling like we fit in any of them and trying to find our place in some of them and you know it's hard and do you feel like it's gotten easier as you've grown older I I personally think so I think what changed for me is Mm -hmm. when I got to college and I went to I went to Stanford University which is very international and there's just people from all over the U.S. and you have people from India and you have people from Arkansas, Indian people from Arkansas that have never seen another Indian human being before, right? Um, so there's a huge spectrum. But what got me is I went to the R. There was the South Asian Student Association equivalent at Stanford, and I went to one of those, and um, I was just so excited because there's other, you know, ABCDs like me, just people that didn't have really a strong access or connection to their culture, but it was in our DNA to find that, right? And it was something I was craving, you know, the first time I heard a Bollywood song when I was, you know, I was in grade school, high school, like I was like, I want to move to this. There's something in my body that just loves this. I want to learn Hindi. I want to learn this. Like I want to wear the beautiful Indian clothes. And it wasn't because somebody was telling me you have to do that. It was just something within me. And so when I got to college and we had cultural shows and dance teams, I was signing up for all of that. And as I've continued my journey after school, I've just, I've just made so many great friends and confidants that are also Indian American that have, that also have this dual identity. And I think it's finally being 
there's just so much community around that. And I do think it's being celebrated. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy for us, but I do feel like we've come a really long way since the early 90s, right? In the middle America. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And I think it's been the same. I think so much of what you say resonates really deeply as you grow older, as you find other people who have had similar experiences, you connect and you it kind of starts to make sense. So I completely, completely get that. Something else I wanted to talk to you about was so many South Asian women, right? Like me included. We kind of live this double life. We have to be this, I don't know, good Indian girl at home. Then we've got to fit into whatever it is that's happening outside. And this whole ethic of work really hard, like it's kind of in our DNA, it's like encoded within us, like, you know, with our kind of mother's milk, we get this must work hard, <laughs> you know, in our brains. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and <laughs> so I <laughs> wonder if you could talk a little bit about this kind of double life between the life we, you wanted to live and the life you kind of ended up living as a young woman. And kind of some of the career choices. And, you know, tell me a little bit about that. You know, so even though right now I'm doing what I love, right? And it's not the the typical path. And I, I made a sharp left, right? <laughs> from the, the straight, yeah. from the corporate path I was on. I still feel that. I still feel that dual identity. And it's, it's in my psyche. I, you know, and I think part of it is also I am a mom of two kids and I, I am a daughter-in-law and I'm still connected to this this world where there are perceptions and, okay, should I also be, you know, I have a full-time career, but should I be cooking dinner for my kids every night? Because like when I grew up, I had so many aunties that were doctors, but they also had like four kids and somehow they were amazing chefs, amazing cooks, cooking every meal for their their husband and their kids. And I was like, oh, okay, that I, I'm not doing that. Am I a failure because I can't do all of it? I love my kids and I love my family, but I'm not, I'm not cooking all of their meals, you know? I'd rather be spending quality, quality time with them and order out when I need to. But yeah, I feel even on the conservative spectrum, right? Should I speak up about this? Should I wear this? Is this too much? And it's it's not so much what my generation is saying for some reason is what is what are my parents generation saying about me and the truth is what I've learned now it took me a long time to figure this out is no one's really thinking about you everyone's really just focusing on their own personal struggles but for some reason I feel like that community still has their eyes and are judging what I do and I yeah and yeah. I I I'm able to get out of that when I need to but I'm just I'm admitting that it's still there you know, like, I'm not going to be vulgar. I'm not a vulgar person, first of all, but like, you know, talking about sexuality or all of these things, it's just never grew up saying that. And it's like taboo in our community. And so as a grown woman, I still have this sense of discomfort. And it's yes. just, I don't know if you feel that way too, but I do. I don't know if it'll ever go away. It's just, it's just there. I honor that it's there, but you would think by now, you know, yes. You know, career woman. I've got all this, and I'm doing all of that, and I'm no. But I still, it, it's all there. It's still all there. I think what we've got to remember, you know, when you said that voice of of your parents or aunties or whoever, like it's so deeply conditioned and ingrained in our psyches that even if we've, I don't know, 
become these amazing, you know, you're like really well known. You've done all these amazing films. You live in, you know, like you're Hollywood for God's sake, you know, but you'll still have that voice of that auntie who spoke to you when you were 14 saying, oh, Mel, why are you wearing that thing? Or how can you say this or whatever? <laughs> it's the same for me. Like every time I, you know, I'll, I'll hear someone's voice and I've got to, it's almost like this double work you've got to do. Not only have you got to be like amazing at whatever you do or in your life. Uh-huh. And then you've got to spend half your energy trying to quieten this other voice that's not yours, but you've kind of inherited because of your culture and your heritage that tells you, oh, should you be really doing that? Or have you made doses for your family as well as done this gazillion million dollar movie? You know, or whatever. I'm just saying doses, but whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, add whatever food you like. Yeah. But I don't think it's our fault. I just think it's the stuff we've inherited. And it's almost like this conscious work we've got to do to kind of unhear those voices. Does that make sense? Or am I rambling? Makes, no, no. I mean, I felt like I rambled I, that you said it much more succinctly than I did. But it's just, um, I, yeah, I think it's just about honoring it, right? Versus just saying, I don't, complaining that I don't like it. I don't like it. It's my parents' fault. It's just, is it their fault or is it their parents' fault? Like who's our parent? My mom grew up on a farm in Kerala, came here to work as a nurse with like one suitcase, didn't speak English that well and figured it out. Didn't talk about all the things that maybe American moms talk about with their girls, but is it her fault? She didn't have the internet on a farm in Kerala Googling how to be an open communicative mom you know it's just they did what their mother taught them and she comes from a family of eight kids and she's the you know this the third youngest and so whose fault I mean whose fault I can't blame my parents for it I can't they were just doing what they knew and maybe their parents were doing what they knew and but it's 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 here and I am working hard to make sure that my daughter I have two daughters two and five don't grow up with that sense of shame that I think is mm. inherent to someone yes. in our generation the sense of shame that's kind of deeply embodied within us mm-hmm. and we've kind of carried for all our lives and slowly starting to unlearn I think as we grow older and go into the world but yeah I'm really happy you're doing that for your girls because you know they'll have less of this stuff to deal with I want to talk to you about this kind of quite pivotal moment in your life, choosing to do the kind of expected career of of, of a smart, you know, South Asian person. And you chose a particular career. You went down that career path. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I did engineering in school. So I got my degree in mechanical engineering, pride and Proud of my family, you know, all the relatives in India were so excited, even though I don't really know them or have a relationship. But for some reason, I was really proud of myself that my parents could tell all of their, you know, friends and family members that their daughter was going to be an engineer from Stanford University, mind you not. So I worked in the tech industry for a little bit of time, 
did a fellowship out there, but I realized that I didn't want it to be an engineer per se, but I wanted to do a little bit more of the business side of things. So what do you do next if you don't want to be an engineer and you go to a school like Harvard or Stanford or Princeton, you go into investment banking or management consulting because all of those firms just come to these schools to recruit people with these sorts of degrees. So again, it was kind of like, what is the best I can do? You go into investment banking or management consulting because all of those firms just come to these schools to recruit people with these sorts of degrees. So again, it was kind of like, what is the best I can do at that time? And working for a company like McKinsey or company and Goldman Sachs, those were the really highly coveted jobs right after school. And so I ended up pursuing and getting an offer from McKinsey and company in New York and so again, my parents were super excited and proud, you know, earning an income, young professional in New York City, on my way to taking over corporate America, their daughter from Stanford with all these student loans, she's going to pay them back. It's going to be great. And about a year, I think it was a year and a half, I told McKinsey I wanted to quit and become an actor. It wasn't that abrupt, but I mean, if I were to sum it up, that's just what happened. I dreamt of being an actress my whole life. But for some reason, I always thought that theater it, growing up was very much a white privileged thing to do. When mm -hmm. I talk about being an outsider amongst my peers in high school, I felt like even more of an outsider with those the theater kids, if if that makes sense. Totally. But it was it was just this childhood dream, this just just something in my stomach that was telling me this is something that you should try you should you know and so I would do little productions here and there not part of the theater program but just like the variety shows in school and grade school and and high school and even college as part of the South Asian Student Association I'd be the one emceeing all the cultural show performing and emceeing and doing the the comedy sketches in between and that was all fun but when I moved to New York, I Googled acting classes and I just enrolled in one. Um, and I thought, okay, this is interesting. And then I just kept going and I would just meet other actors who told me, okay, try this program, work with this teacher. And before I knew it, I was just living this double life. I was working in a very serious work environment. I was working- McKinsey, right? McKinsey Company, yeah. which was- it was such a great opportunity and it, you know, I actually really in, loved the company and who I worked with. And I was learning all these cool things about helping businesses and project management, which is something that has helped honestly helped me right now in my producing career. Um, and also as my, on the professional side of being an actor, I think it's helped me tremendously, but I just knew that it's, it's, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing for my life. I was, I was helping businesses with their problems. I was consulting them on their problems and helping them be the best that they could be. But I I really wanted to focus on potential I had within me in the creative arts as a, as a performer. And I had all these interesting ideas for stories and characters. And so once I started doing this acting on the side, I would, you know, get off of work and run to an acting program from like 8 p.m. to midnight, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then Saturday mornings, I was up doing improv at, you know, UCB here in New York from, you know, for like four or five hours a day, just training and performing. And um, I started to meet some champions in the field, you know, a June, like an assistant at one of the top talent agencies in the U.S., right, who's like 
what is this? What are you doing? You have something. This is really interesting. I'd done a couple things on stage she had seen. I also started doing commercial lifestyle modeling. It's like you're not tall enough to be a runway model, but you can endorse a product and take pictures with it. Um, So through someone in the South Asian community, they recommended me to their their agent. And so if there was something, a gig that worked on a weekend, or if I could take a sick day from work, I was able to do that. So the reason I mentioned that was because it gave me an, uh, a revenue source, like an income stream. And so between McKinsey and all this stuff I was doing on the side, I started saving up some money. And so when I had about three months worth of savings and mind you not, I'm still in, I was still in debt from college. Yeah, I knew it was time. There was also one thing I am for a huge thing I'm forgetting to mention. It's, it is a big part of it. Yeah. And I gloss over it because it's not something fun to talk about. But I, I think I should tell you is, um, during that, there was this inflection point where I was just working so hard at McKinsey, right. And I was getting a little burnt out. And things in my arts, you know, and acting. And I was also dancing as part of a troupe in New York City. Things were starting to take up and I was just so excited. And I kind of had my heart invested in that. And then what happened, I was about to be sent away on a case study on a project in Detroit for six months in the middle of winter. Um, Because as a consultant, you travel to various companies wherever they are and you just camp out there. And my heart dropped because I can't do all the other stuff that I'm doing here in New York. And I'm not going to be, I don't know, this is just going to be hard. And um, I came to work the next day when I got that email. I was at a training session. There was like a training session for all the analysts. And I remember we had broken out into small groups and I was role playing. I was just giving a presentation essentially And I had a seizure and like a grand mal seizure. I just remember being wheeled out and waking up in the, in the hospital room and seeing the doctor and yeah, apparently my, my just brain short circuited and it was just, I didn't know what it meant at the time. I was just thinking, oh, I'm not sleeping much. I'm just being a little unhealthy and I need to take, you know, take better care of myself. But I really think it was the universe trying to tell me that you're, this is not what you're meant to be doing. Stop being so strong-willed and doing what other people are expecting you to do. I was so in my head about this. If I quit, you know, what are people going to say? And I have to do this. This is what I committed to. And I told my parents I was going to do. And this, you know, that's what, what I should be doing. So I can't be an actor. But then my heart was saying, no, you, you should you should be doing that. And it just one day, it was too much and my body gave out. And so um, that was really what, that was really inflection point. It was not just like, I want to be an actor and I save money. That was logistically what happened, but emotionally my brain short circuited and I had to figure out, okay, which which path am I going to choose? Because I cannot do both. When you're talking, you know, I get goosebumps. It's almost like, You know, we don't think of this enough and I don't think we realize this enough how intelligent our bodies are and 
if we're doing this thing where we think, oh, mind over matter, if I can, you know, push myself hard enough, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And your body at that point just went, no, Mel, <laughs> actually, what you want to do is this. <laughs> so I'm going to create the short circuit in your brain so that you just sort of listen to what you actually want to do. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so hard, doesn't it? And sounds so harsh. But your body was more intelligent at that point than your mind was almost and sort of did this thing for you Mm -hmm. so you could pursue the path you were meant to pursue. How amazing is that? I know I'm kind of making it like all a bit like, oh, how amazing. And I'm sure it was really painful and difficult and, you know, traumatic and all of that. But and now, so I, I'm, I have epilepsy. Um, so I was diagnosed with epilepsy. Wow. And so I take medication wow. every day and it's, it's under control. It's actually having, ep- ep- mm. you know, I, it's completely under control, but every time I take that medication, it's, uh, it's actually a nice reminder that I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. I made that yes. choice. Wow. That is incredibly powerful. I almost want to like stop there. So every morning when you're taking that pill for your epilepsy, you're saying, I'm doing the thing I'm meant to be doing in my life. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. My body staged an intervention a few years ago. I was working in advertising for decades, sort of miserable, but didn't have the courage to make that big change. So my body stepped in and it was extremely difficult. I had panic attacks. I had desperate anxiety. I had debilitating depression. I literally couldn't get out of bed for days and it was terrifying. But as awful as that sounds, it was also my wake-up call. Did I really want to spend the rest of my days advertising products that I didn't believe in? Did I really want to stay stuck in airless offices trading drinking stories with colleagues? The answer was a massive no. It took time and it took a lot of energy, but eventually I quit that career to set up Soul Sutras. And now it feels like I'm doing what I was born to do. My body tells me now that I was put into this world to help my South Asian sisters and that I'm finally fulfilling my purpose. So, how did your parents react or family, broader family, from kind of this engineer and Stanford and McKinsey, like really, really big names, to then Mel turning around and saying, actually, mom and dad, I want to be an actress. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> so leading up to that conversation, they knew I was doing stuff for fun. And they were mm. saying, oh, mm. Mola, it's, it's great. It's uh you look beautiful. This is funny. Um, but it was never like, keep doing it. You should do it professionally. You should quit your job. Of course, they're not thinking that. Um, but I called them and I told them what I planned to do. And there was just silence on the other end. But I don't think it was silence in a way that was coming from a place of anger or disappointment I have to, I will say it's, it was not disappointment. I think it was just confusion and concern. So first question was, how are you going to pay back your student loans? How, how do you make money doing this? Is this safe? 
And the next one was, what are you going to do about healthcare? What if you get really sick? What are you going to do? And again, it was concern. And I honestly would have the same concern about my daughters. If they're going into a field I have no idea, no clue about, is she going to be safe? Is she going to be happy? Is she going to feed herself? I told my parents at that moment in time, I said, I will, I promise, promise I will pay back my student loans on my own. Now I told them that I'm going to do this and I'm going to succeed. And I promise you, I'll pay back my student loans. And the first, um, my first big role on TV was a series regular on Code Black. And I remember halfway into the season, in one check, I just wrote off all my student loans. And it was one of my proudest moments. That's incredible. Yeah. And I remember calling my parents and they were so happy. But um, needless to say, I think they... They were confused, but slightly reassured that I was so, I had so much conviction. You know, I, I started off doing small things and then I had some big wins and then nothing and then some wins and, but they were always super happy about the fact that I was doing something that I was making ends meet. I eventually got healthcare. I did it right away and I should have, but it was too expensive at the time. And during that time I got like this weird infection and um, it cost me a lot of money out of pocket to treat. So my parents were absolutely right that you do need healthcare, but I was, I was able to, to make it work. And my parents are my biggest champions, especially on WhatsApp with all of their relatives in India. They all know what I'm up to. And again, there's that, that's where the mental chatter is still coming back into play. Everybody knows what I'm doing and they're watching. And, but in a way I use all of that as fuel, not just the fact that my parents are watching and maybe my extended family's watching, but yeah, part of that is I want to, I do want to make people proud in addition to my daughters and my community. I want to make myself proud too. Like I'm my biggest competitor. There are no competitors. I just want to do what I said I was going to do, if that makes sense. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going. Hey, I wanted to pause this episode for a minute to share something that I'm really excited about. Podcasting changed my life. I went from typing into Google, what is a podcast? Yes, I did that to creating the multi-award-winning Masala podcast. And now I'd like to share some of my knowledge with you. I'm starting podcasting masterclasses on my website. And one of them has been created especially for women podcasters. Just go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk and look under courses. Or email me at podcasting at soulsutras.co.uk and I'll share details with you. I look forward to helping you on your podcasting journey. Dear Teenage Me, you know that you have a list of dreams. And practicality, we have never applied to your dreams. But don't worry, I'm taking off your bucket list. Ko. But at our own pace. Dear Teenage Me is a Spotify original podcast produced by Yuva Originals and hosted by me, Ehsas Channa. Click on the bell icon and listen now. I mean, you and I have never met before today, but when I saw you, I remember watching you on um, the holiday. Yeah, Hot Mess Holiday. Hot Mess, yeah. yeah. 
hot mess holiday. And I remember seeing an ad for it. And I'm like, oh my God, Asian women, Diwali. Oh my God, like it's an actual film. I got so excited and I watched it as soon as it came out. And I remember feeling so proud. I didn't know you, but I just sort of looked at you and I thought, oh, wow. I felt kind of like, like I had done it, if that makes sense. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. All the sisters had done it, like, you know. So you are already doing it. Absolutely well done. Was it hard making that shift or was it? okay kind of going from this kind of quite high-flying well-paid career to acting which is not as consistent was that challenging was that or did it all kind of fall into place <laughs> nothing at all nothing falls into place I think <laughs> I think in retrospect you look at the journey and it, it makes sense right but in that moment in time yeah. you're just yeah. throwing things on yeah. the wall and hoping something yeah. lands and yes. taking advice from the wrong yes. people and falling flat on your face and losing money here oh. making a little bit money here and just it was it was challenging but I love the challenge and that's why I know that my husband, that's his biggest criticism. He's like, you work so hard and very few things pay off. But all you need is just one. All you need is just one. You have no idea for before Hot Mess Holiday was made, just pitching an idea about two brown women being funny, two best friends. You know, it just, yes. no one understood. And we'd started that journey many years prior. So that was just trying to, put something of my own thing on air, which is a huge hurdle, but starting off as an actor, um, in New York city, I just had to knock on so many doors and just ask questions. And like I said, fall flat on my face. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about the acting industry. I didn't come from a family of performers. I didn't know, but the engineer in me, you know, the first thing she did, uh, I, the first thing I did when I quit is I bought a whiteboard and I put it on my wall in my tiny little apartment, uh, share in Manhattan. And I did a, um, a flow chart, like how to become a working actor. And so, you know, I was like, okay, you have to have headshots. You have to make a reel. You should take these sorts of classes. They meet casting directors. And I mean, of course, nothing happens the way you want it to happen, but it, it happens. There is work you have to do. And one good thing that I'm trying to, one thing I'm trying to instill in my daughters too, is it's, it's not necessarily, you got to work, work, work and focus, focus, focus. It is, you have to be strategic, right? Um, they don't know that word right now, but it's more like, you know, what do you want to do? What are the steps? You know, what are the steps? And you'd be really surprised. And I tell young actors this too, is how many actors don't have those those things in place to have a professional career. It, it's a career. It's not just about this is my dream. I want to be an actress. It, no, it's, it's, it's a career. You are a commodity. You have to cultivate your instrument and that talent. Cause if you don't have that and there's an opportunity, you're not going to get that opportunity. Right. And also if you don't have the right sort of, if you're not, uh, I hate to use the word brand, but if you're not, position yourself in the right way too. You're, you're not making good relationships. You're burning bridges. That's not good for you either, right? What was it like as an aspiring actress who is South Asian at that age, kind of trying to break into mainstream TV and film? 
did you face any kind of racism or sexism, any of that? And how did you kind of navigate all of that? Yeah, it was, first of all, I never saw myself as a South Asian actor. Like I never really qualified myself when I started. Mm. I just wanted mm. to be an actor or like a New York City actor. Yeah, yeah. That sounded cool and sexy. I wanted to be doing interesting projects, but I never thought like, oh, I'm South Asian, so I'm not going to get cast. I would read scripts and I'd be like, they're never going to cast a South Asian person for that. It's definitely going to be, <laughs> I would think that, but I, I still went after every opportunity I could. The things that were challenges are, were that, yeah, even though I would have the opportunity to audition for things that were clearly written for white, I knew that wasn't going to go to me. And then if it was an Indian character, when I was starting out, so many of them, were required to have accents. And I always felt resistant having to do that or play the um, the yeah. daughter that's so, so many projects like a decade ago are about girls being married off, you know, or having that mm -hmm. battle mm -hmm. between their parents about getting an arranged marriage. And I know it's still relevant today, but back then that was like the or only storyline. So that was really frustrating. And I did have, like I said, I was able to find some good champions in the industry that saw past my ethnicity and my skin color. But there was a point in time where I was working with um, some representatives and they would only submit me for like Indian or exotic girl. And I, I feel like they didn't have the open-mindedness to push me in, a, in different ways. And yeah, I didn't work with them for too long. I can't say I face blatant racism in my face, but I yeah. did notice that you could go in a room and a casting director. <laughs> I had this happen to me one time where I did the audition. It was written for Middle Eastern. Okay. Because at that mm. moment, yeah. any brown woman was auditioning for Hispanic mixed you know, they weren't so specific about whether you had to be the ethnicity or not. So I had to throw in Spanish accents. And then with this audition for this Middle Eastern character who was American, I came in and I just did my normal American voice because I'm also American. She's like, you know what? Just do this one with a Middle Eastern accent. I think they'll love that. It really it made me realize that the casting world sees us in a way that we don't see ourselves. They only see us in certain verticals. So we have to fit into these different categories. And I think that was very challenging for me too, because I just felt uncomfortable. I just felt inauthentic doing that. But when you're just starting out, you don't say no. Yeah. You don't say no, you just go, you don't know, you have these opportunities. And as long as it's not violating something, a deep, part of your belief system, then you just go mm. for it and you get practice, but you can't yes. control the way other people see you other than just being so good that they see yeah. something, the character in a new way. But yeah, I, I find that too. It was just a lot of my peers too. They would only get submitted for Indian characters and those were few and far mm. between. So you really need to work with the right people that see beyond that. But I guess from what you're saying, you kind of kept going and kept going until the opportunity presented itself, right? 
Yeah, um, and I'm still going. That's, that's pretty powerful. And you're still going. <laughs> I'm it's still going. It's 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 still a grind. I mean, you're still putting yourself out there wow. for so many opportunities, and maybe one percent of them will work yeah. out. Yeah, this is the thing I don't think kind of people outside of the film or TV industry realize how much work goes into. You know, they might see the one percent that actually is on Netflix or on TV or on your movie screens, but they don't see the other 99% of work that you're actually doing that never gets made. I don't think people realize that. It's a lot. It's, um, you know, even actors that you see on TV all the time, most of them are still auditioning, you know, even while they're filming, whatever they're doing, they're still auditioning for the next wow. thing. And Wow. Wow. There's really no job security yeah. unless you're making, well, I was going to say, unless you're making your own content, but even then there's no security with that. Wow. Mm. I'm really encouraging the, the, the next generation to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're getting them to be realistic. <laughs> Being realistic. It is very fulfilling realistic. and rewarding. It, it really is. And I'm so Here grateful, so grateful to be Here doing what I'm doing. I'm just saying, if you're realistic, it's, it's, it's a grind. Yeah, it yeah, is an yeah. absolute grind. Yeah. And I think it's important. And thank you for saying that as well, because I think most of the world doesn't understand that. I think they just see somebody on TV and they're like, oh, they just kind of rocked up and it all happened. It doesn't happen like that. There's a lot of work that goes behind that. And a lot of times you may or may not be successful and then you keep at it and you don't give up and you keep going and then success happens. I think that's important for people to hear, I think. There was something in one of your interviews that, that it really kind of stuck with me and I thought it was a really beautiful moment and I wanted to talk about it. Somewhere you spoke of you, the fact that your dad wanted to be a drummer mm. mm -hmm. and uh, he was never really allowed to pursue it, you know, in the same way that you said, got to be doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever. And then for him, the fact that you've become an actress somehow is equivalent to that. How does he feel now that you've really succeeded in this profession, this creative profession, that he sounds like a creative soul as well? I think he's super proud. I think he's really proud. Now, you summarized it really well. He, my, my father grew up playing drums in his backyard and just entertaining all of his neighbors and his family. And he had dreams. I want to be a drummer one day. And, you know, his father, my grandfather said, no, no, you can't do that. You have to pursue this field and you have to make money and you have to support the family and so my dad did that he became he trained to be a med tech and so and then he worked his way up um and he to this day still sends money back to support his brothers and their families in Kerala which is really really nice um meanwhile the, his his neighborhood friend who he's playing drums with became one of the most famous drummers in all of South India which is insane when they would come to Chicago my parents would always take us to go watch that watch and perform but yeah my dad had this um this dream that he didn't get to fulfill and I think he saw that creative spark in me too and so while he could never say go for it you should quit all of this and pursue your dreams I felt like he wasn't allowed to say that he felt like the right thing would do to be just would be to just encourage me to do it he he was he's my biggest champion I know he is and um he's a great example too of you should never give up that 
creative outlet. Um, when he retired, he started picking up the drums again. And now he's recorded, I think now, probably like eight or nine albums. I mean, he's not selling these things. He's giving them to family and friends, but he will bring his drums to family events or he'll go to um, the retirement home. Like he has, it's so funny. He has these gigs, like these weekly gigs at retirement homes where he plays the drums with him and his fellow like drum circle. It's amazing. That's so cool. And my mom, I mean, I my parents it. are, in, you know, in their seventies. My mom's like helping carry the, helping carry the drum equipment <laughs> it's over. So sweet. Yeah. And I, one time I like designed his album cover. I mean, it's just, it's fun. I'm just so glad that he was able to reconnect to, to his, his passion in, in this music arena. And I think he is just, I think he's really happy, but also, you know, got married, had kids. So I, I think, <laughs> I think he's happy that I have a, I, I did not did it all, but I, I, I think having an, um, I've always wanted to give him grandkids. And so I'm happy I was able to do that as well. Which leads me to talking about expectations. I feel like as South Asian women, you know, whichever part of the world you're in, we kind of come into the world sort of loaded with expectations, whether that's the career we choose, whether that's having to get married or have kids or be a certain way, dress a certain way, you know, talk a certain way. There's so many expectations. How do you feel about them? And how have you kind of navigated them? A lot with that, especially being in the creative field and in front of the camera and not having, you know, when I was in my twenties, not having made it, but also thinking, oh, well, I should get married and then I should have kids by a certain age, but then what is that going to do for my career? I mean, I'll be completely frank about it. Like, what is that going to do for my career? I can't work in front of the camera and I will be so busy with the kids that I'm just not going to be able to do it all. And uh, do people care? I, I feel like, I, you know what, what was really hard is I had an Indian, I was talking to a, an Indian producer and I said like, Hey, you know, my husband and I are thinking about having kids. He's like, why would you do that? That's career sabotage. Other people in the industry that were not Indian, you know, they would have me like, Oh, maybe you should wait until you've had like your big breakout moment. And, because look at all the other A-lister actresses, like they had big careers before they got married and had kids. But there was something about hearing it from another Indian person that was just like, what? It just felt icky. Like you should be doing that, but you also should not. And so I felt like yeah. there was no win-win. And but what I've learned is you don't give up your career when you have kids. In fact, it's fueled me more because, A, I have a tremendous, there's like a new vessel in my heart that has opened up after having kids and these things. I, you know, they aggravate me, but I also love them so much. And I'm able to bring that, that love into my work. I'm also able to become a kid again through them. Um, and I bring that to my work. But I also have this sense of, you know, showing my kids that I, I can do it. I, you know, I have a dream and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pursue it. And I love you guys so much, but I'm going to figure out, you know, how to 
how to do both. You know, it's, it's two things. It's being a South Asian woman. Like I said, I grew up with these, everybody cooked and cleaned and also had careers. So I should be able to do that too. But coupled with having to be in front of the camera and capitalizing on that more opportunities or the idea that there's more opportunities when you're young versus, you know, an actress in her thirties or forties. I think that is changing. I think that is completely changing. But when I was working my way up, there was this perception. Once you hit 30, you're kind of, you know, if you haven't made it, you haven't made it. And then if you get married and have kids and you haven't made it, good luck. Right. (laughs) And then, but if you're Indian and you don't have kids, you're a failure. Yeah. So, so what do you do there? Either way, we're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Either way, we're in trouble. As a South Asian woman, your life is mapped out for you before you even take your first baby steps. I was taught that I was expected to finish my school, then university, then get a job, and then quickly get married. And then as soon as I got married, start popping out kids. I remember feeling this immense sense of pressure as a young woman, walking to my college in suburban Mumbai. I could physically feel it on me, almost as much as the heat of the noontime sun scorching my skin as I walked. I knew I didn't want this life that was being mapped out for me. But I was a shy and scared young woman, and the thought of hurting my parents by disobeying them would make me tear up. I was so torn between fulfilling my duty to family and being true to myself. It almost felt like a war was being waged inside me. But I did eventually emerge from that war to become the woman that I've become. I'd love to talk to you about your film, Hot Mess Holiday, which I absolutely loved. Like I said, it was so many years in the making. We actually sold the concept as a television show and developed it with Comedy Central. But during the pandemic, they wanted us to make a TV movie. Mm. And we said, okay, great. We're going to make a TV movie for them. And, but we're like, you know, we want all these South Asian characters. This was our mandate. We want all these South Asian characters and we want it to revolve around a South Asian holiday, Diwali. Um, Cause they asked us to do a, a holiday movie. And so they were totally on board And so we just got to work. We um, auditioned all the amazing South Asian actors. We called up our friends, if they could come and do cameos. And then we showed up on set. And it was so amazing walking into the trailer and just seeing all of these beautiful brown faces that were just generally so excited to be there and working on a movie that celebrated us, our culture and our community. And it all of us in leading lead roles, you know, everybody on that screen had a moment to shine and take on characters that were not, not things we'd seen before really as South Asian characters on screen. So we had so many pinch me moments throughout that. And my co-creator of Hot Mess Holiday and my, my dear friend, Serena Jindal and I, we literally a new actor would walk onto set that we've always wanted to work with, you know, actor. 
And we'd be like, oh, we'd like, we have this weird, we have these like weird friendship moments, but we'd like squeeze each other and squeal and like, it was happening. And then we would shoot the Diwali party scene, right? And all of us are in these amazing clothes and we found some great Indian music. And um, and then we have this absurd plot thrown into it. And we're like, are we really doing this right now for a major TV network? They're letting... No, I don't want to say letting us do it, but we are doing it for this major TV network. And this is just so new and wonderful. And what a joy. The first time we could see an all-brown ensemble on TV in the U.S. It was very, me watching it, I felt very moved. I mean, even if we didn't make it to see that, I would have just been like, oh, I wish this existed when I was much younger to show that it's okay. Like brown representation is awesome and it's fun and and relatable. And yeah, I'm just, it was such a, it was such a wild ride. It really was. It was fantastic. And what do you think needs to change to get more of this kind of stuff on our screens, more South Asian creatives and storytellers and actors? What needs to change in Hollywood or among the kind of people, the powers that be that make these decisions? We need more South Asians who make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So we, we need more people at the top, right? Yeah. And right now there's a lot of people that are rising the ranks and it's very exciting. And we need more people to go on that journey too. But those people that are rising the ranks, they're doing a good job of pulling people up, right? And I think yeah. we have to yeah. keep doing that. So we have to, if you have stories, find a way to tell them, find the right people that can make them happen. And it is hard. It's hard getting something made, anything made in Hollywood, but it's a huge obstacle if you're not seeing an executive on the other side that can understand your experience too. When uh, we were pitching um, our television series, which ultimately became Hot Mess Holiday, we were talking about how when we we shot a short film, we put it online and the South Asian community really loved it and went nuts and said, oh, this is so relatable. And they just, this white executive was like, so confused. He's like, what, did, what was relatable? Like, what, why do you think people related to it? And we're like, because this is just that South Asian people being normal, right? We're not trying to fit into a certain <laughs> idea. It's a very authentic but yeah, we need those storytellers. And there are, there are so many talented South Asian storytellers out there, but we need to continue to get in those leadership positions where yeah. I'm the executive here and said, I have this person, they pitched this show. It is brilliant. You should give them a real consideration. You need those advocates in the yeah. room. I mean, because people see thousands of pitches every year, but you just, if you have that one person advocating for you, it makes a huge difference. It really does. You're the co-founder of this not-for-profit charity, Hospital for Hope in India. What's this cause about and why is it important to you? It is a hospital in India that is serving this amazing community in Jharkhand. It's been over a decade now. It started because on a voluntary trip in college, a couple of classmates and I were like, we realized that this one community didn't even have access to healthcare. You know, here in the US, we break our leg, we just go to the ER, we're there in like an hour, whatever happens. 
there, this community had to hop in it and we would see this, you know, someone gets injured or they're sick or a wife is about to give birth. They, they have to drive hours to a hospital and imagine if it's monsoon season, it could take a day to get through all of that. And so when we got back to school, we thought, well, what can we do as, you know, these zealous college students, you know, everybody wants to make a difference, right? When they're in college, what can we do? And we said, you know, let's, let's try to fundraise and let's figure out a way to build them a hospital. And so we had all graduated. We were working in our respective careers. Um, And so we, we partnered with different organizations, raised a lot of money, and we were able to get a team there and build them a functioning hospital hire doctors and nurses and fundraise more for an ambulance. And so now, right now, they're they're treating over 1,500 patients a month. And I think the idea of helping others is ingrained in my DNA because my mom was a nurse for 30 years too. So I grew up um, seeing her take, you know, take care, you know, take care of me and my brother, but I would visit her at the hospital too. And so in a way, I think I was channeling my mom, my mom's love and energy and her kindness into building an organization that can do that for other people. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Mothers and daughters, uh, you have two daughters, as you mentioned. What, what legacy or what world would you like them to have as young South Asian girls growing into women? What, what, what's your dream? I hope that they feel like they belong and know that there will be challenges and there will be insecurity and there will be fear, but there is a community of people to support them to achieve all that they want to achieve in the world. That's beautiful. What about another little girl? So (laughs) if Mel now could talk to Mel, I don't know, five-year-old Mel or six-year-old Mel, What would you say to her? I would say that the reason you feel like you don't belong is because there's something special in you that you just need to get out and own. And so find out what that is and lean into it. And don't be so worried about what others think of you because you're going to blossom. You are blossoming. That inner conviction is just going to light the world, light the world up. So be fully you. Put your heart into it. What's coming up for Mel? What's uh, new projects? Anything we should know about that you're really excited about? Uh, Sure. So I acted it in a project that had a premiere at Sundance this year, which was really exciting. Um, And so now it's continuing with this film festival run. And then I'm also going to continue my work as a producer and actually will be forming my own production company so I can continue to champion stories with South Asian protagonists. You're being exactly what you just said earlier. What we need for change is for people to have the power and you're going to be one of those people. Wow. I can't wait to see what comes up. I have a feeling it's going to be some amazing stories. Thank you. I hope so. I cannot wait. Before I let you go, any words for listeners of Masala Podcast? Any, anything you can think of, advice, whatever, anything? I would say continue to champion and celebrate each other. That's the only way we're going to continue to 
make a dent in this world, right? So if you are in a position, if you have the motivation and courage and interest to explore new territories that other South Asian women haven't, make sure you keep the door open behind you for the next generation of South Asian women and champion them, hold their hand, because that's the only way we're really going to continue to represent in all in all facets of life. Absolutely agree. Keep the door open and more of us come through and we change the world for, for everybody, for ourselves and for our daughters and their daughters and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mel. It's been such a joy chatting with you and thank you for being as open and vulnerable and authentic in you as you have been. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Seriously, this is such a wonderful podcast series. So I'm very, very grateful to be part of it. Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras, dedicated to celebrating and supporting South Asian women. This is a space for all of us bad babies who don't do as we're told. This is where we get to celebrate our culture our way and be exactly who we want to be. I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or my website, soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. Hi, I'm Kabir. And I'm Yogi. Yes, we are two guys. And yes, we are in love. We are in love. India mein gay hona aur ek gay couple hona kya hota hai? Together we will try and decode that. Apni desi bhasha mein. With generous helpings of desi style Ashiki, only in our podcast Shuddh Desi Gay, a Spotify original, Spotify produced by RM Word Pictures. New episodes out every Monday.